Given that we have been used to exporting our people to Britain, the USA, Australia, Canada, or everywhere else, many people were quite surprised at the hysteria that was so easily whipped up when a few thousand refugees and immigrants made their way to Ireland. Uh, Khalid has already referred to some of the headlines that appeared in, in the newspapers, headlines such as refugees flooding maternity hospitals in the evening herd on the 25th of May, refugee rapists on the rampage on the Star on June 14th, Refugee flood to spark homes crisis, the Irish independence on the 12th of June. Services to face overload as refugee flood continues in the Sunday Business Post on, on the 18th of May. From our perspective, the asylum issue is fundamentally a human rights issue. And I suppose one of the good things about what's happened over the last year is that this is now an issue. It is a very big issue. It is an issue politically, it is an issue in the media. And there has been a lot of misinformation, and that is, of course, appalling. And the consequences of that are a growing overtness or a growing visibility of racism. It isn't easy to work with refugees these days, and it is very important to see so many people here tonight and to realise that there are a lot of people who are very disturbed at what has been put in the media and at the myths which are. Um, about it. Cramped, shabby, above a solicitor's office near the forecourts in Dublin. The Irish Refugee Council is usually the first point of contact for asylum seekers coming to this country. Nadette Foley, chairperson of the Irish Refugee Council. In the end of the 80s and the early 90s, in the other EU states and even into Central Europe, you were getting a gradual increase with a peak in 1992. At that time, Ireland was not a country of asylum. We were getting 30 or 40 applications uh, for asylum. We had 39 applications in 1992. So while the peak was happening in other EU states, we were just not, virtually not getting any asylum applications. So what's happened is we have lagged behind the other EU states. And now, over the last three or four years, there has been a gradual increase from around 400 in 1995 to 1,200 last year. And this year alone, we have almost 3,000 applications that have been submitted. It seems in Ireland at the moment that there's two different types of refugees. There are resettlement refugees and the asylum seekers. Can you explain the distinction, the difference? Yeah. Well, basically, the people who are here for resettlement, we sometimes call them programme refugees or invited refugees. And what happens is that the Irish government is asked by perhaps the EU or the United Nations to assist with the process of finding a country for refugees to rebuild their lives. And these people are like the Vietnamese who came in 79 or the Bosnians who began to come in 1992. So the, the, the Bosnians who came in 92, originally 200 of them came here and that community has grown to about 700. And uh, those people arrive in Ireland, they immediately have a status. They immediately have the right to work, the right to study, the right to go on housing lists, uh, the right to establish themselves and their family here in Ireland. The other people that are perhaps more visible and perhaps there's been more in the papers about them in the last year uh, are people who themselves uh, make the decision to leave their own country. They decide that it is too late, they have to leave, their life is in danger, they will be tortured, they will be imprisoned for their political opinions, their religious beliefs, their race, their nationality, or because they belong to a particular social group who are being persecuted. And those people make that choice themselves or are forced into that, that decision. 
and forced to flee, they leave their own country in very difficult circumstances. They may not be able to get a passport or a visa. They may have to leave their own country illegally. They may also have to enter a country like Ireland illegally because they have no other choice. So that whole process of somebody arriving here, asking for protection from the Irish state, and going through uh, a consideration of their case, that's called asylum-seeking. Now, if you arrive in the state and there is no question of you having travelled through or spent some time in another EU state, if it is very clear from the moment that you arrived that you had a ticket for Dublin or you may even have had a valid tourist or student visa for Ireland, then at that point you will be, your application for asylum will be accepted into the system for processing. At that point you will be handed a questionnaire in your own language and the crucial question is why are you afraid to return to your own country? I have my own house. I have my own cars. I have. I employ people. I am responsible to a large number of my yeah, family members. I, I. I have investments in businesses. Um, in converted, you know, converting my uh, my. Uh, small fortune to, to pounds will probably amount to very little. But it stretches very far in Nigeria. As a person who was involved in the media, how did you find your civil rights or your freedom of speech being infringed upon? Um, for a country that has been ruled by the military for 27 years of its uh, 37 years of independence, uh, you can imagine that uh, uh, the, the possession of uh, human rights, civil or, or, or otherwise, uh, is almost non-existent. You were imprisoned yourself? Yes. <laughs> a very sad experience that I do not wish on my uh, worst enemy. Was it once that you were imprisoned? Twice. Twice for, uh, of course, without charges, uh, locked up uh, by the sec- security services. Uh, in the state where I live in, uh, for uh, felonious activities. How would they arrest you? Under what circumstances does it happen? They just come to your house, break down your door and arrest you. Simple as that. And what are the conditions like in prison? Uh, What you have is like a standard uh, uh, cubicle uh, with up to 20, 30 persons standing up all day, all night. And this is where they stay for as long as as the government have them. And how long were you imprisoned? The first time was for three months, and the second time was, thank God, was for a few weeks. Um, I was released because of, of an undertaking that was made out by myself and uh, sponsors, saying that uh, we would no longer be trouble to the government or any of his arms. After your second imprisonment, mm-hmm. did you behave yourself? Um, yes, I told the truth. As always, um, and um, they, you know. So, they, what happened that you felt you had to leave? That there was the choice wasn't really mine, you know. When when the press that the uh, printing press that we used was taken over by the armed forces, and uh, some of our offices burnt down, uh, members of uh, the staff were arrested. Some of whom are still in prison today. Uh, when that happened. Um, it's awoken in us uh, the anger 
the need to keep fighting. Um, at this time, uh, uh, the, the, uh, a prominent uh, uh, literary figure, one of, one of, I would say, my role models, Ken Sarawiwa, Ken Sarawiwa uh, was hung by the government um, in secret. Up to, to today, we do not know where his remains are. His family were never given a chance to say goodbye. For these reasons, we felt the need to continue the fight, and this we did in secrecy. Of course, they could not find us. They could not find where we were printing our materials or our offices, and the only places they could find us was our homes. I was fortunate that uh, the day they came to my house, I was out of the house. I was um, elsewhere, and uh, uh, my, my people were able to uh, phone me, or the people I was with, to tell me not to come home. I did not, and I took to hiding for a while. Uh, when I knew that the, 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 the siege at my house was not going to subside and that people, members of my family, were being abused and harassed, um, with the help of uh, people uh, who are sympathetic to our cause, I was able to uh, leave the country. Now, the choice of des de uh, destination was not mine to make. Um, you don't you don't bite the finger that feeds you. When you are in trouble and you see a way out, you take it. See when that comes up, the, the photograph comes up clear. Yeah. If that was a real passport, there would be um, there would be uh, kind of like you know like the microfiche on a on a, on a credit card. That would be the first thing they're going to do. When you stick a photograph on the UV light like that, if it's coming up to you as a clear photograph straight away, then you'd be starting to ask questions, you know. So how would you tell without checking that, though? Someone's just, like, it's going by so quickly. You don't from just a person passing. That would be the first step of you. Like, you'll start asking questions then. If you come in here and put that under there, and that wasn't right. Like, then there's also a thing there. Now, their height is given on it, OK? So a fellow comes into you, say six foot tall, and the fellow, you, when you bring him in here, we have a thing there that's just kind of a height meter, and your man's five foot five. That's another thing. And then we compare signatures also. The signatures are on, on all passports here. And we'll ask them to fill out landing cards, and if there's a, obviously the signatures don't. So was that actually someone else's passport once? Yeah. And the person who gets the false passport, would you say they're doing it because they're desperate, or they're, like, I mean, are they genuine, or aren't they? That's a hundred dollar question. Don't know. I'd say the vast majority of them. I mean, you literally don't know what you're dealing with out there because obviously they're not going to tell you their case history or who they are or what they are. They're trying to bluff you, so they're not going to be open and tell you everything about them, you know. That's it. Um, and would you find that the people who are genuine would tell you what oh, yeah. they're... Oh, yeah. You, you and you get a feeling for it, would you? It's like dealing with all people, you know. You know you, you'll know after a while uh, what, what you're dealing with, really. You know, you will, just from talking to somebody. Basically, you know... And, of course, then we'd be huge, there's a huge problem here, but some of the lads here... Italian, some of the lads will speak Italian, some of the lads speak French, but what we normally do is get onto the embassies and they will converse with the people. If, for the sake of argument, I think this fellow is not Italian, I'll ask them to talk to him because it gives where they're born and, uh, and they'll start talking to him, say, about the village he's born in and they'll come back to you and tell you, no, he's not from there. He's not from there, you know. And what happens then? Then he goes back. He goes back from the country he came, he came from. And what, what if he happens? says, oh, but I'm seeking asylum? Well, straight away, then it's different. Forget it altogether. We have to, we talk to you, you know what I mean? Your opinions are not, it doesn't come into it. Like if he says to me, I'm, he's looking for political asylum, that's it. Even if he, he doesn't say it immediately, even if he spends oh, an at hour, any time, you know, at any time, yes, exactly. And it has happened. Yeah, the minute political asylum is mentioned, that's it. It's a different, it's a different uh, set of rules altogether, you know? Whatever the truth, action at the airport has to proceed in terms of the existing legislation. 
be it the original Aliens Act of 1935 or the newly implemented Dublin Convention. This frequently gives rise to tension between civil rights activists and the authorities. He came into, he was, Sarah, he was a member of Ken Saraweva's party. He was actually his, his secretary when he came in here on uh, a false British passport. And, oh, OK, that, 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 was, uh, that was detected, that was false. But the minute he mentioned who he was, that was it. He was, he, we took the details off him when he was up the stairs. Like he was, that chap was absolutely mortified now in case he was going to be sent back. And he's here. And good luck to him, you know. Do you think genuine refugees or asylum seekers are suffering because of the sort of the scams that are going on? Of course they are. Of course they are because um, they've been they've been tired with the brush of people who are you know basically coming in to to sponge the system. Yeah, they are. They are being. There's no doubt. But you you have seen that there are genuine people. Well, oh, there is. Tell, yes, there is genuine people coming in here. There's no doubt about that. And there always will be. It isn't up to us to decide who are genuine or who are not genuine, but. I think the genuine people will become very apparent very quickly to any of us that are here dealing with them. It's no problem at all, you know. The Aliens Office in Dublin's Harcourt Street is another dot on a citywide map tracing the steps of asylum seekers. Once in the country, they all end up registering there every second weekend. For the authorities, it is frequently difficult to differentiate between bogus and genuine asylum seekers. Detective Inspector Nicholas Keneally of the Aliens Office is one man charged with implementing the laws and rules governing the situation of refugees in Ireland. Does he know who is a genuine asylum seeker? It is very difficult. It is very, very difficult to answer that question. I, I, I just couldn't give you an answer to that question. Who do you think can answer that question? I don't know if there's an answer for it, to be honest with you. Some people who come in, um, they wouldn't have enough funds, they wouldn't have the proper visa, they might have a false passport. So in some ways they have all the requisites of what it is to be an illegal entry. But is it because they declare asylum that whether they are genuine or not, that they're allowed into the country? That is the magic word. If one of these people come in and their documentation is incorrect, and if they say nothing about asylum automatically they are sent back on the next available boat or the next available flight, whichever it may be. But should that person mention the word refugee or asylum, they must be allowed into the state. Since um, January 97, how many people have entered the country? How many people claiming asylum? Uh, since January of 97, uh, to date, the figure is uh, roughly 3,300. We expect for the year 97 that it will round off at about 4,000 people seeking asylum. How many have been refused? Uh, I can only give you the figure since June, since we got the new uh, legislation since June. We have in excess of 950 people have been refused entry since that. On the grounds that they weren't seeking asylum? These are the people that I spoke about earlier whose documentation is correct, is incorrect. And who wouldn't have said? Who wouldn't have said that they were seeking asylum, yes. At, at the moment, we say by the end of the year, we will have in excess of 5,000 people who are here seeking asylum. Five or four? Five. Oh. Four for this year and approximately 1,200 for last year and small numbers going back for the past few years. So we'll have five to 5,500 people in the state who are seeking asylum. Um, the Department of Justice are currently recruiting extra staff to speed up the process of these applications and I can see within the next six to nine months that there will be a lot of deportations. Do you think the Department of Justice should have done this earlier to leave the huge amount of numbers that are here now? That is a matter for government to answer.
Perhaps if they were entitled to work, they may have a better standard of living here while their application is being processed. And they would be probably viewed better in the eyes of the general Irish public. Indeed, indeed, yeah, because what uh, the media say is that they're taking the housing and they're taking the welfare of people, some of our own people who are living in poverty. But are they? I wouldn't like to comment on that. Why are you here today outside the, the unit? I came here to get ticket. For what? Ticket to get some money to live in. Is this your first day here? No. Have you been in Ireland long? No, two weeks ago. And have you had any money yet? No. And where are you staying? No, it's too. Near here? Yeah. Why are you here today? For accommodation. When I want change B&B with flat <coughs> because I am married. I, my wife is paid the check. Why are you here this morning? change the um, accommodation. You need a ticket to stay? Well, I need a ticket to, to speak to them upstairs. So you've got to get a ticket before. Hugh Carr is Chief Superintendent of the Eastern Health Board's Asylum Unit in Block 1 of James's Street Hospital. At 8.30 every morning, asylum seekers start queuing outside waiting to be given a ticket that will enable them to talk to an Eastern Health Board official. By 9.30, there are usually a couple of hundred standing in line. On their first arrival, we, we would see that uh, we sort of have two obligations. Number one, to see that we find them accommodation, which is normally temporary emergency accommodation for a short period, anything from one week up to about, on average, three months. And in addition, then, we see that they get their welfare entitlements and their paid uh, supplementary welfare allowance. In addition to that, we make an assessment on their clothing needs, as many of them leave their home country at short notice, and they would arrive here with very little personal belongings. How much the B&B, how much the hostel? Well, prices range from different parts of the city, but generally we can take it that the average bed and breakfast cost is about £20 per person, and the average uh, hostel accommodation cost is about £10 per night per person. How is the rent for this accommodation, whether it's a and b or a hostel, how is it paid for? Do the individual uh, asylum seekers pay? No, we just pay the asylum seekers their, their weekly welfare uh, payment and the cost of the accommodation we pay directly to the, to the landlords or proprietors of the B&B and hostels. 40 people, 7 days a week, £20. So the landlord is getting a lot out of it. Yes. You deal with the, the the invoiced amount of money from the from the proprietor of the B and B or the hostel, and then the each asylum seeker, individual asylum seeker will get supplementary welfare. Um, so you deal with here; they don't get it from the dole office. Why not? The asylum seeker uh, do not; they're not given a work permit. They're not allowed to work. So they are dependent on on, on the welfare uh, payments from from the state. And in order to qualify for unemployment assistance in the local labour exchange, you must be available for work. And as, as they don't satisfy that precondition, their only source of income then is supplementary welfare allowance, and that is administered by the community welfare officer from the health centres, or in my case, from this specialised unit here in James Street. And how much is that? The weekly rate is £65.40 per, per adult, uh, which is equivalent to the, to the unemployment assistance rate in the labour exchanges. Would the same thing happen... Um, a homeless person, a homeless Irish person, what are uh, you know someone who dispossessed and lose their mortgage and can't afford to pay their rent? Yes, again, I can say categorically that we, we afford the exact same treatment 
for our indigenous Irish people as we do for the asylum seekers. Are homeless people suffering in, in any way? Are the, are the hostels and B&Bs being given to asylum seekers instead of Irish homeless people? No, absolutely not. No, We have our own list of, of bed and breakfast and hostels. The homeless unit in Charlotte Street have their own distinctive list of hostels and B&Bs that they also use. We don't cut across each other's list. But there are accusations of a two-tier temporary accommodation system with hostel landlords giving preference to asylum seekers over Irish homeless people, especially drug users. For this reason, among others, the Eastern Health Board is anxious for asylum seekers to move into more permanent forms of private housing and actively encourages them in this direction. Khalid Ibrahim from Iraq is head of the Irish Association of Refugees. Well educated and holding the elusive status of official refugee, he nevertheless finds life in the private housing sector extremely difficult. Uh, some people, they think that we are doing business, good business in this country with this 90 um, quits that we are getting from the social welfare. More than half of this will go to the pocket of the landlord and you have to stand up in the whole week with 40. So do you think it's a business? Or do you, do you think that people will leave everything for this amount of money? I don't think so. I don't think any Irish people will accept that we leave everything behind us just to get this 90 from the social welfare. Are you living in an apartment or a flat? or? A <laughs> what apartment? I am living in a room uh, and it's uh, near the airport. <laughs> it was very difficult for me to find a place here in Dublin. There, there, were, uh, there were a lot of difficulties to find a place. There, there are places, but they prefer to give places to the students and sometimes to the other uh, European people. And uh, because of some bad coverage, now they will not uh, uh, be happy to give uh, places for refugees, unfortunately, and uh, uh, particularly in the centre of the town. So it was very difficult to find a place, and then I found myself near the airport with a very cold room, and I must pay for this cold room about 40 per week. And in the room, is there is there a bathroom next to it or a kitchen? No, no, uh, there, there are a sharing bathroom, and you have to share it with the other people. Asylum seekers are not housed by Dublin Corporation. However, Dublin's inner city dwellers still feel that they have been given a raw deal. Nadette Foley explains some of the tensions. You have to go off and find yourself a flat. You may be lucky enough uh, to be on the waiting list in Focus Point's uh, flat finding service, which is adapting uh, its services very well to deal with the needs of asylum seekers. It's getting volunteer translators. It's getting uh, other asylum seekers to, to help out with the new arrivals. Uh, and we work very closely with the Health Board Refugee Unit and Focus Point's flat finding service. But there aren't enough flats and houses out there. Then when you um, get a deposit from the refugee unit for your flat, you find your flat, you have to move into a different health board area, you have to go to the local uh, unit with Irish people and you're standing side by side, the Irish people have not, it, it's never been explained to them that uh, adequately, although the public statements have been made by the health board to state categorically that all the money for the supplementary welfare and the rent allowance for asylum seekers is reimbursed to the health boards 
100% from the Department of Social Welfare. That whole bill is taken by the Department of Social Welfare. So the money given to Sansa because is not coming out of general health and welfare budgets for the inner city. But that's not obvious to, pe- to people on the ground. Uh, they don't know that. There is fear. There is confusion. There is a shock of seeing a lot of non Europeans. Um, these are the first group of, of non-European Union nationals who are entitled to welfare and they are only entitled to welfare because they're denied a right to work and because the Department of Justice doesn't have a system to make speedy decisions on their asylum applications. They're forced to live here for several years. I mean, what did I do before I was allowed to work? Well, that was two years of me watching TV. I knew nearly all the soaps, I think. Actually, I did, yeah. I watched a lot of WWF because I had so much anger on me at the time. What can you do? Couldn't work, feel miserable, sometimes buy six pack of cans, go home, if you could afford it, that's... and drink yourself to be able to go to sleep again. So... That's when you weren't allowed to work. Well, I mean, when you arrive here, when you seek asylum, you're not allowed to work. You're... They give you money to live on and pay your rent, which a lot of people think that, oh, this is great, we have this. And, I mean, they have this, you know, and so what more they want? But I would rather have no money and have a job than have money coming from the government and not being able to work because you have nothing, you have no enthusiasm in yourself. You know, when you when you know that it's like, okay, you're getting kind of a freedom, but it's not a freedom. It's like a, a modern jail, okay? Because you're in a different country. You don't know anybody, okay? A lot of people say, oh, here he is in our country taking our money and uh, isn't he well off? And that's not true. Because there's a lot of pain there and uh, not a lot of people know about it. Being stateless is bad. Being in a refugee camp is a little bit better. Being in a safe haven and treated humanly is more palatable. But to a person who is in a state of limbo, it makes no difference. Being in a foreign country and lonely is bad. An occasional shoulder to cry on is a little bit better. Having counseling services is more palatable. But to an already destroyed mind, it makes no difference. I went actually to Ethiopia and I stayed there for seven months in, in the refugee camps. And what were the conditions like in the camps? It was terrible, terrible. Yeah, the food was terrible. It was just like, I think, handouts from the United Nations and uh, something like, uh, I don't know what it's called in English, shanties, just boxes like a house. Sometimes it rains. Sometimes there's a lot of diseases like cholera, malaria. So you just see people dying and it's like living a terrible place, going to another terrible place, which is not near you, you know, which is not your country. And... You don't have the citizenship of that country. You are not protected. And is that where you decided you had to get out? Yeah. And you want you put all your money into mm-hmm. to go to you gamble and put all your money to go to any other safe country. Yeah. And how do people hear about these carriers? Is it word of mouth? How do you know who to go to? Actually, it's word of mouth. You just like go to the big cities like in Ethiopia or Kenya. And then they, what, they give you papers and then they, they get you out? Yeah, they give you fake passports and they get you out. Sometimes they just, it depends if you pay a hell of money, they carry you. By carrying you, I mean they give you a passport and they are with you. 
sometimes you pay some little money they just give you a fake passport and you are on, the, on your own you might be caught or you're very nervous you become very nervous so did you get carried yeah i was with someone i think in my case uh, she was a somali she had canadian passport she said oh we'll get out here were you at dublin airport yeah not dublin airport it's in shinan shannon shannon yeah it was in shannon we were from ethiopia somalia i think ethiopia moscow and then here dublin and i don't know where the plane was going to either to the us or canada i don't know i'm not sure she took me to the islamic center where i met some somalis who took me to the justice department that's the next morning yeah in dublin in dublin yeah so had you you had no choice really uh, not really i had no choice in fact i just wish if i had a choice i could have stayed in my country mm-hmm. have you had racial tension have you had comments on the streets sometimes yeah sometimes yeah and it really makes me very sick what do people say to you uh, some of them are abusive some of them the actions like the security people you know in the shops it's like they're tracing you they think you're going to steal something and it's really humiliating it's bad and what kind of things would people say to you like nigger bastard or something like that yeah do you ever say anything in return uh, no not most of the times i just keep quiet and move how different is it for you how difficult actually it's the way i see it the culture is very different the language i've tried i've improved a lot i attend english classes by volunteer teachers which is run by the irish refugee council and the other problem is i would like to learn more about irish you know um, tradition culture and these things but here in dublin it's very difficult i i don't know people seem to be very busy or i don't know but i would like maybe to go to the country and to meet people and have time to talk and see learn more about the irish culture and ways you, of life you were saying before learning things like the do's and the don'ts yeah yeah like right now i don't know i mean the do's and the don'ts but if i believe if i go maybe to the countryside i can know what i mean the do's and the don'ts you seem to be interested in some place like ennis ennis yeah that's all that's the place that i've been told now that i have in mind and i hope hopefully one day i'll go there and see for myself before i go there and settle since the late 1980s an average of 120 asylum seekers have lived in ennis situated 18 miles from shannon airport it is the first place immigration officers send those seeking refuge here accommodation is good and asylum seekers are made to feel welcome Within this marginal community, word about Ennis has travelled and people are moving here from Dublin. One such family from Nigeria made the move for their children's safety and education. Both of them are in school. The, the girl is in a Holy Family school and the boy is in a CBS Christian Brothers school. I came because I fear persecution and persecution from a, a secret cult and uh, especially from my, from my family. that's my father and uh, he be, he belongs to a secret society they call them the the reformed ogboni uh, fraternity it's a secret cult which he had uh, he had been trying to initiate me into right from when i was young and i refused so since then i had uh, this 
kind of have, you know family rift between me and my father and all the members of the family. Then secondly, uh, my daughter, uh, she, um, he, my father wanted to circumcise my daughter. The, uh, the first child we had in 1985 was was circumcised, you know, the the, the fetish way, and then we, she died after about six years. She was six years plus when she died as a result of female circumcision. So when we had the second one to that's the, the the girl which that is here with me now, my father wanted to circumcise her too. So uh, uh, personally, that one is against my own Christian background because I went to a Christian school all along. And my father is a, a secret society, is a member of secret society, is the head of secret society in the village, and also an herbalist. You know, he doesn't believe in orthodox medicine. So he wanted to do it. And uh, uh, they, uh, according to my own uh, uh, profession, I'm not always at home. I'm always out uh, high, I'm always in high sea because I'm also a sailor by profession. So she, he wanted to do it without my consent. And I've already informed my wife that if such a uh, if such thing should happen, I mean, it should, it shouldn't, she shouldn't allow my daddy to do it so that we don't lose the, we don't lose the girl again. So when he wanted to do it, uh, my wife had to take off with the kids. What is the cult about? The secret cult? Yeah, the secret cult. They, 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 they are very dangerous, dangerous in the sense that they, they operate in the night and they do all sort of dangerous things. They kill human beings. They eat human beings. They drink human blood. So that's that's mainly, and their their main aim is to is to kill, to avenge anybody that that uh, that violates their rules. Like you were saying, drink human blood. And... Yes, they do. They do. They do drink human blood. They do drink human blood. They they, they do it. They use it for rituals, and uh, they, they they they've been involved in a lot of sinister killings in in the in the country, you know. And when they kill, they, what they, they, they what they normally do is that they take the private parts of the victim. And use it for, for for rituals. And your father is part of this. Yes, he is the head. He's the head in the family of this secret site in the village. Did you only have to do the interview for your family? Yeah, we all went for the interview. We all went for the interview. Not just you, the four. No, no, no. Everybody, everybody went for the interview. Uh, the a lady interviewed my wife in a separate room. Then the the a, a man interviewed me in a separate room, and uh, so they, they they just want to corroborate, which I feel they want to corroborate our stories. So that was all. What happens if we don't get refugee status? Ah, uh, well, for now, I have not, I've never thought of that. I'm praying. I'm very, very optimistic, and I pray very hard that I will get it. Uh, if, on the other hand, I'm unable to get it, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know. I have to cry. I have to cry to the Lord. I have to cry to the government, because there's no way I can go back to my country again. Because if I should go back. Those people, they are still, they are desperately looking for me, and I'm very sure they are going to kill me and my family, because they are heartless. Even your father. Yes, they are heartless. They they don't have human feelings, even to their own children, they don't. And I will refuse anybody to circumcise my daughter. How yeah. do you feel about, you know, getting a handout from welfare and and not being able to work? Ah uh, well, <laughs> initially it will be frustrating, but. Uh, uh, like 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 an adage, an adage in in Africa. They said a beggar has no has no choice. So you have to, you have to do what they tell you to do. You have no choice because I mean you, you are begging for them to, to allow you to stay in their country. So whatever they tell you to do, you have to do it if you really want to stay. Shannon Immigration send asylum seekers to the Red Cross, represented in Ennis by Tony McKendrick. 
Hayır, ismani. Stiff as a stick. Ha? Stiff as a stick. Ha? How is Martha? She's okay. Well, I'm over 40 years and my wife Martha is over 30 and we love meeting people and he passed away the time me I'm retired and he's passed away the time and more 99% of my lovely people you know and they have problems and it all depends on that first contact with, with, with people from the west that what kind of things are and if we put them at ease well they're, they're grand then you think a lot of people are frightened? Well, they are. You, know, you, you don't know what kind of countries they're coming from. You know, they tell you uh, some frightening tales. Not whether they're true or not. I don't know, but I take them as they tell me. Of, of medication. It's not that that was in. It's big and fat and, and, and nourished and everything. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The people that they, they are suffering. Where did where did they go to meet? Who? The devil. And he look at. <laughs> He's a devil himself. War is bad. Ceasefire is a little bit better. Peace is more palatable. But to a man who died in the war, it makes no difference. Unemployment is bad. Part-time job and study is a little bit better. Allowed to study and work is more palatable. But to an asylum seeker in Ireland, it makes no difference. So you wrote this poem. When did you write it? Uh, I wrote it the last three months you know, while I was here. It's a very, it's not a very optimistic poem. Are things really that bad? Actually, yeah. And in a state of limbo, it's like some people wait for one year, two years, three years. They don't know what's going to happen to them. Maybe after two years, they're going to be returned back. And about the unemployment, as you know, the Islam seekers are not allowed to work or to study. And it just, it's bad. We have an organised association for the Vietnamese and we have an association for the Bosnians and they are working very well within their own communities. But it is extremely important that the voice of refugees is heard uh, throughout, throughout the debate on, on asylum. So by the end of this year, there will be 5,000 asylum seekers hoping for refugee status in Ireland. Some of them are genuine, some not. All wait in a limbo that can last up to three years. I have a small flat, um, which I share with another person. I am happy here because it's a peaceful house. My neighbours are very pleasant but it does not compensate for home. Back home in Africa, we have large apartments, and all the rooms are filled with people, and it isn't there. As small as this flat is, it is empty. I would love to go back. I love my country. I miss my family. Um, I, miss, I miss the sunshine. Ireland is a beautiful place, but it is cold and it is wet. Um, but there's dangers in going back. It, you know, it, it it is a vast country, there are many people, but who would tell how safe would one be from persecution? What happens if you don't get refugee status? If one is refused, the only option is to be returned back. What would happen if you returned back? Oh, it would be terrible because, I don't know, I might face the very thing that I tried to escape and I don't know. 
but it will be better for me because that time if I die uh, people won't say oh he was he was a young guy and he was supposed to leave the country he didn't leave that it was his mistake you know but now I have left I've tried I've put all my money all my wealth I won't be there to blame myself right but people say well there's nothing that you could have done more